Standing up in McKinney, this is According to Callis, episode 500. Now, the conservative thought, (laughs) or the conventional thought, if you prefer, is that you should be doing a celebratory episode. You've hit 500. That's quite the landmark. It's It's a big deal. And perhaps... Perhaps at the end of the week, after this 500 episode post, you might actually even hit the 200,000 download mark. Yeah, okay, well, that all sounds well fine and dandy. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait until I get to episode 501, and then I'm going to do a little bit of a celebratory episode. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a little commentary on the second, well, Yes, the second book I reread while on vacation, uh, published in 2014 uh, <laughs> under the non plume of Thomas Hobbes. The book's name is Victoria, a novel of fourth generation war. Okay, uh, as like the previous book, this is less about whether or not I agree with everything I've read. Uh, it's more about the entertaining aspects therein and the thought-provoking commentary or interaction that occurs within the body of the book. So rather than argue with me about what the book says, consider what the book says as coming from the author, not from me. You know, the, the whole purpose of reading books that you don't necessarily agree with or picking up on ideas that you don't necessarily readily want to have of your own is that you're supposed to expand your horizons. You're supposed to understand where other people are coming from. And as Sun Tzu may have pointed out, (laughs) you should know your enemy. Uh, The best part about this is these guys here, they would be what I would call fellow travelers. That's right. Allies. The, The majority of the characters in the book are entirely reasonable and relatable in many, many ways. At least to me, you may find otherwise, but nevertheless, I encourage you that you should check it out and uh, take the time. Uh, if you haven't already picked up Milan Labe, you should. And while you're at it, go ahead and get Victoria. All right. The dedication I thought was interesting. Dedicated to Russell Kirk and the Sword of Imagination. All right. Now, what I want to do is I probably could have went through and looked for a a number of uh, excerpts, if you will. But what I thought I would do is I would give you a summary of the preface. Being that the preface sets the tone in the mood of the book and kind of gives you an idea of the direction it goes. Now, I got to tell you, in many ways, this is probably even fair to say more far-fetched than Milan Labe, but equally challenging, thought-provoking, and in some ways, just plain entertaining. So here we go. From the preface, the triumph of the recovery was marked most clearly by the burning of the Episcopal Bishop of Maine. (laughs) I mean, talk about kicking it off. (laughs) She was not particularly a bad bishop. She was, in fact, a typical Episcopal bishop, typical of Episcopal bishops in the first quarter of the 21st century, agnostic, compulsively political and radical, and given to pacing a small idol of Isis on the altar when she said the communion service. 
and by 2055, she was tried for heresy, convicted, and burned. She had outlived her error. By the time only a handful of Episcopalians still recognized as female clergy, it would have been easy enough to just let the old fool rant on her final years in obscurity. In fact, the easy road was not taken. The Episcopalians turned their difficult duty of trying and convicting, and the state upheld the unpleasant responsibility of setting torch to faggots. Now, to be clear, that is the correct term for the wood splinters that they used for the burn, not as in reference to homosexuals, but nevertheless, what was marked as an act of recovery? I well remember the crowd that gathered for the execution, solemn but not sad, relieved rather than relieved rather that at last, after so many years of humiliation of having to swallow every absurdity and pretend we liked it, the majority had taken back the culture. No more apologies for the truth. No more yes buts on upholding standards. Civilization had recovered its nerve, and the flames that soared above the lawn before the main state house were, as the bishopess herself might have said, liberating. Now, she could have saved herself, of course, right up until that torch was applied. She had All she had to do was announce she wasn't a bishop or a priest, since Christian tradition forbids women to be either, or she could have confessed she wasn't a Christian. In which case she would have been a bishopess, priestess, popess, or whatever in the service of her chosen demons. That would have just gotten her tossed over the border. But the prince of this world whom she served gives his devotees neither an easy nor a dignified exit. She bawled, she babbled, <clears throat> she shrieked in hellish tongues, and she lost control of her bladder. And she sold herself. The pyre was lit at 12.01 p.m. on the cool, cloudless August 18th, St. Helen's Day. The flames climbed fast, after all. They'd been waiting for her for a long time. When it was over, none of us felt good about it. But we'd long since learned feelings were a poor guide. We'd done the right thing. Was the dissolution of the United States inevitable? Probably. Once we got... All the diversity and multiculturalism crap got started. Right up to the end, the coins carried the motto E Pluribus Unum, just as the last dreadnought of the Imperial and Royal Austro-Hungarian Navy was the Verbis Unidis, but the reality for both was Ex Uno Plura. It's odd how clearly the American century is marked, from 1865 to 1965. The 20th century historian Shelby Foote noted the First Civil War made us one nation. In 1860, we wrote, the United States are, by the end of the war, the verb was singular. The United States is. After 1965, another war, we disunited, deconstructed, with equal speed into blacks, whites, Hispanics, women, gays, victims, oppressors, left-handed, albinos, and congenital halitosis. You name it. The homosexual said silence is equal to death, and nature replied diversity is equal to war. In four, in four decades, we covered the distance that had taken Rome three centuries. As late as the mid-1960s, God, it's hard to believe America was still the greatest nation on earth. The most productive, the freest, the top superpower, a place with safe homes, dutiful children, and good schools, strong families, and a hot lunch for orphans. By the 1990s, the place had the stench of the third world country. The cities were ravaged by punks, beggars, bums, as in third world Rome or third century Rome, 
Law applied only to the law-abiding. Schools had become daytime holding pens for illiterate young savages. First television, then the internet, brought the decadence of Weimar Berlin into every home. In the year of our Lord, 2068, in my 80th year on the planet, we, the citizens of Victoria, had the blessed good fortune to live once again in an age of accomplishment and decency, with the exception of New Spain, most of the nations that cover the territory of the for former United States are starting to get things working again. The revival of tradition, Western Christian culture began is spreading outward from our rocky New England soil, displacing savagery with civilization a second time. I'm writing this down so you will never forget. Not you, nor your children, nor their children. You did not go through the wars. Though you have lived with the consequences, your children will have grown up in a well-ordered, prosperous country, and that can be dangerously comforting. Here they will read what happens when people forget who they are. This is my story. The story of the life of one man, John Ira Rumford of Heartland, Maine, soldier and farmer. I came into this world near enough to the beginning of the end for the old U.S. of A. on June 28th. 1988. I expect to leave it shortly without regrets. It's also the story of the end of a once great nation by someone who saw most of what happened and why. Read it and weep. Now I got to tell you, <laughs> I read this first probably uh, eight years ago and I was really struck at the <clears throat> description put forth by the man that is your narrator, the, the main part of your story, if you will, <clears throat> as he laments what went before him and yet celebrates what he helped bring about. The biggest irony, if you will, of this is that it starts in Maine. Maine of all places. New England's been uh, a source of many, many problems many issues over the course of the life of this country of the union, if you will. So the, the solution or, or the probable solution as put forth by the author and the main character is going to come from new England. An interesting change of events. I imagine Brian McClanahan might be rolling his eyes at this point. Should he be aware of this book <laughs> or my commentary? But the idea being that, the people go along and they continue to go along until they get to a breaking point and they've just had enough. And they say, stop, we've come this far. We will go no further. As a matter of fact, we're going to push back. We're going to take it all back and we're going to remove this crazy that we allowed to come in because we thought we were being nice people. We thought we were doing the right thing. We thought that we could change the world by comforting the world. We thought we could improve the world by bringing the world here. Now, conceptually, yeah, I mean, uh, Christian missionaries have changed the world as they've gone out and brought Christ to the nations, but the inverse has been occurring now. We're not only removing Christ, but we're bringing the nations here, the pagan nations. And uh, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and ask you the question, how's that working out for us? How many of you think that's been a net positive at this point? It's often uh, pointed to as uh, 1965, that's the Hart Cellar 
Act, where we basically open the doors to our nation. Uh, and then you can go, I mean, a little closer to recent history, where we basically passed amnesty for people that violated the law and should have been punished. No, 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 that's okay. You've been here. We're just going to let you stay. And we're going to grant you citizenship. We're going to this. Now, I'm not willing to say that it's all been bad. But I'm also willing to just go out on a limb here and say, maybe we didn't get the trade-off we were looking for. Maybe that didn't work out for us as well as we had hoped. Maybe, just maybe, we were sold out by our leadership. I know that's some wild speculation. I apologize for the brief interlude there, but (laughs) as I was going to say, I try very hard to remain objective, even-handed, and fair. And I and I feel like I have to preface this all the time because I imagine at some point somebody's going to go and take snippets of this program and try and use it against me. I just imagine that. You know, it's real simple. You can go cut out 30 seconds of something somebody said or, you know, take even a couple of minutes of it and imply or lie that this is what this person thinks or says or believes And use it to try and damage them. Well, here's the thing. I might not be overly enthusiastic about a whole lot of things that have gone into my nation. I might not be overly enthusiastic about a whole lot of things that have been done in my name. But I love my country. It's the government that's the problem. I mean, we all know this now, right? I mean, anybody that's following along clearly grasps the difference between my country and my government. They don't work for us. Oh, I know they're supposed to. I know the Constitution kind of states that this is what they're supposed to do and nothing more. These are the minimum things they ought to be doing, and we can't even get them to do that. But again, this is kind of what it comes down to. The whole premise of this book is people just get tired of it. The, The economics of the day finally burn out the country as a whole, and people do what people do. They start looking out for their own. They start to focus on how can they protect their people first and foremost. They look at how can they protect their communities first. How can they think about their state first? Now, I know in today's day and age, nobody wants to talk about that idea, right? Nobody wants to talk about putting anything first. That's selfish. That's mean. That's uh, elitist, whatever. But think about it. The very people that make those accusations routinely are elitist, routinely are snobs, routinely want to dismiss the rest of us. Let me ask you, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a large coalition of people that were focused on protecting, oh, I don't know, Collin County first and foremost, and certainly Texas as a whole, or would you rather have a bunch of globalists come in and try and run everything, try and determine who gets to live, who gets to die, who gets to have a house and who gets a car, who gets to eat, how much and when and where? Now, you may say this is a little far-fetched or this isn't real, but I'm here to tell you they've been openly speaking about this for years, for decades. I mean, heck, the John Birch Society, think what you want about them, but they've been all over this for decades. They've been warning. They've been telling people. They're like Cassandra, right? They can see the future, but nobody wants to believe them. At this point, you know, me, little old me with my own little show that, you know, I'm blessed to get about 600 downloads plus a day. I got to tell you, 
I'm not really willing to roll over and play dead. I don't see a Victoria springing out of New England anytime in my life. Um, I wish that the plan for Wyoming could have been laid out and played out. But right here, right now, I'm in Texas. Right here, right now, I am looking at how can I take the very things that I've been learning over the course of my life and get them applied to the local politics, to the local government right here. How can we make a difference right here, right now? Now, look, I don't expect that anybody's going to listen to little old me. In fact, I imagine there's a great number of people that I know that are acquaintances that are probably less enthusiastic about what I have to say than they ought to be, but they are. And I don't know if it's, (laughs) they just don't like me because I'm a reformed Yankee or they don't like me because I am who I am or if it's just they want it their way. You know, one one of the major takeaways that I've had, and, and this is, again, not entirely related to the book, but I will circle back to the book. Uh, there are a ton of people out there that just want to be important. They want to feel important. They want to feel like what they're doing will be followed. Now, I got to tell you, full disclosure, there's a prayer of mine often. Hey, Lord, use me in a way that I can make a difference. Use me in a way that I can help save the Republic. Now, when I deal with people on a day-by-day basis, I don't throw that in their face. I don't act offended when they want to do their own thing. I fully expect it. I don't understand why there are certain segments that feel like if you don't agree with me 100%, you're not worthy of my time. One of the interesting things is, again, in the book Victoria, right? They openly discuss the idea that, hey, you know what? Uh, We as Catholics, we don't agree 100% with the Protestants. And the Protestants and the Catholics, they don't agree with the Orthodox. And there's there's a number of flavors of all those three branches. But they all agree that Christ is king and they serve him. And that's kind of a reoccurring idea throughout the book, right? They know who they're working for. They know whose mm, goals they're implementing. I know there's a, there's a great deal of fear and distrust on the idea of a Christian nationalist, right? You know, that's been the big boogeyman for, oh, I don't know, at least five or six years now. And I, I poo-pooed it because I didn't think it was real. And now that I've seen that it's real, I actually think it's a good thing. I think it's a positive, a net positive. As long as they realize that if you're not a Christian, we can't hold you to the same standards. And that, again, is something they referenced in the book. Hey, look, all you got to say is just admit that you're not a Christian. You worship ISIS for Pete's sakes. Asarte, you're not a Christian. Just say it and we're good. We can move on. The whole idea of live and let live, maybe that's just a passe idea. I don't know. I don't want it to be. I don't I don't look forward to that. But here's the thing. Like I mentioned yesterday, like I've mentioned many times before, you're going to serve somebody. Somebody is going to be your God. Now, a lot of individualists, they see themselves as God. Okay, that's, that's fair. I, I don't agree with you, but I kind of see where you got to that point. A lot of collectivists, they see the country or the government as God. Well, that's extremely dangerous. Look no further than 
Nazi Germany, Romania under Ceausescu, the Soviet Union, the Russian Empire, the Chinese, currently and in the past, and the Japanese Empire. And if you really want to get down to it, we had a couple of borderline individuals that were similar. Woodrow Wilson, Abraham Lincoln, just to name a couple. I mean, this is dangerous territory. I'm not good with that. One of the one of the interesting things is the book favors and idealizes. Idealizes? Yeah, I guess that's the right way to say that. The idea of order, good Christian order. You can have your liberty, you can be yourself, but we're going to maintain order. We're, we're not going to allow this crazy nonsense to go on. These are the boundaries. You know, when you raise your children or you have a pet, you establish boundaries, right? You know, it's okay, you can do those things, but you can't go beyond this or you can't do this. And you, and you teach them and you hope that those uh, ideals stay firmly planted in your children and that that training takes hold in your pets. So, so again, the commentary in this book is basically coming down to we rejected all of these boundaries. We tore down the fences. Now, I'm trying to do this off the head, top of my head here, but I think it was Chesterson, G.K. Chesterson, they talked about having the boundaries removed or pulling up the fences. And it might be wise to figure out why the previous generations put those fences in there in the first place before you go about removing them. And if I'm misquoting that or misattributing that, again, like I've told you all many, many times, don't take my word for it. Do your own research. I do my best to keep it right. I, I do my best to stay on task, but I make mistakes. I'm only human. So the idea is, we had these boundaries, we had these established way of doing things, and it all got upended. And the result was far worse than what existed beforehand. In many ways, this uh, is almost like a rebuttal, if you will, to the movie Pleasantville. Now, I saw it a long time ago, but I did, I did read kind of an in-depth review in that the notion that it was Essentially, the Garden of Eden that gets perverted. And that's where the color comes in. Now, what's interesting is all the different sinful behavior or negative behavior is celebrated. Just like our current perversions are celebrated. But when you stifle, when you hold down the abusive thought, the... um, exercising of animal lusts, if you will, when you keep that in control, things are more orderly. Things seem to work better. They're generally better suited for the plurality or the majority, if you will, of people. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're rounding up people and stoning them. That was never even talked about in the book because that's usually the rebuttal, right? Well, what are you going to do about us? Well, you know what? You're free to do what you want to do, but not here. That's that's kind of been an echoing theme in this show, right? If you want to be a progressive leftist, right? If you want to be a, I don't know, if you want to be a pervert, feel free to do that in California. Feel free to go back to New York, Chicago, right? I hear New Jersey, Delaware, 
Connecticut, Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington State, they'd all love to have you. We don't need you here. We don't hate you, but you can't stay here. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's such a brutal way of handling things. And it worked for a long, long time. I mean, even if you look at the history of New England, Connecticut and Rhode Island were essentially started and settled by people that were kicked out of Massachusetts. I mean, Maine largely separated itself because it got tired of dealing with the people, the Puritans, if you will, in Massachusetts. Pennsylvania came about because they had this weird notion that people ought to be left alone to worship how they see fit. And Maryland at one point was essentially a a refuge for Catholics. Hmm? I mean... Then there's the whole idea of Vermont, right? It was its own little republic for a while. But we don't even realize this anymore. We don't talk about this anymore. We don't we don't discuss how these things came about. And the interesting thing is almost all of the original 13 states or the 13 colonies, if you will, they all had their own state-endorsed religions or their own state churches, if you will. The federal government was prevented from doing that so as not to interfere what was done at the state level. Now, you can argue whether or not it was a net positive for the state to subsidize a specific church. And honestly, I'm not sure how I feel about that because while conceptually the idea of separating church and state is an animating, quote unquote, an American thought process, what's more interesting to me is separating, oh, I don't know, government and big business. Or how about schools in state or insurance in state or state from pretty much anything. The, these shouldn't be radical ideas. The, these thoughts were very, very common. 250 years ago, nobody would have ever considered what we're doing right now a good idea. What's particularly interesting to me, and I know I've probably mentioned this in passing, is the New Mexico governor, or is it Arizona governor? Oh, it's the Arizona governor who decided to create a crisis whereby she could mandate no firearms. Well, first of all, as a state, theoretically, she does have the power at the state level to do certain things, assuming she followed the state constitution, assuming that the state government was on board with this. One person doesn't get to make this determination. But the state's sovereignty would allow for them to do certain things. If you don't believe me, look no further than what Colorado, Washington, and Oregon have done. They've basically said, hey, you know, we've got a lot of people here. They want to smoke dope. We don't care. Oh, feds? Yeah, I know you say you can't do that, and that's your federal law. But here in the state, we're going to do it whether you want us to or not. I mean, for a long time, the state of Montana said, yeah, I know that you want us to keep the speed limit at 55 miles an hour. Yeah, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to ignore that idea. We're going to basically allow anybody on these wide open roads to go as fast as they deem fit. And if they're stupid and they get hurt, they get killed. Well, that's because that's a stupid tax. But they did what they wanted. The states have this power. I mean, even Justice Roberts, who I am not a fan of, said that if the states don't want to participate, if the states think that, you know, the Obamacare Act, right? The Affordable Care Act. <laughs> if, if you think it's a bad thing, if you think it shouldn't exist, then you, the state, have the power to say no. 
And you, the state, need to take that authority and act like you have that power and authority, yet you don't. He called them out on it, and then you've got states like Florida and Texas that have every right and every ability to say, yeah, we're out, go pound sand, and we didn't. We failed. We failed in a big way. I don't know whether or not Oklahoma or any other state had the intestinal fortitude to do that, but I'd be curious. The idea that you have to subsidize somebody else for their bad behavior, again, goes back to this idea in the book Victoria, they just don't tolerate it. You want to do that bad behavior? Feel free to go do that over there. We're out. We believe in good order. Yeah, you can believe what you want. And to a certain extent, you can do what you want. Uh, we're all Christians here, so we expect that this is how you're going to behave. But we're not going to make you do anything. We're just going to make it known that we're not pleased with how you're behaving. I mean, that's the premise, right? You can use public pressure to get people to behave. And if you doubt that that's plausible or if you doubt that that's reasonable, look no further than what the woke mobs, right, with the corporate... <laughs> Leadership is doing to us all right now. Every ad that you see, every rainbow that you see is being put there and shoved in your face because that's the morality they want you to approve of. They want you to allow your children to be mutilated at five years old to pretend to be something that they're not. They want you to be okay with the idea that young children should have sex with adults. They want you to be okay with the idea that there's no such thing as man or woman. They want you to be okay with the idea that even though we have constitutional restraints on all these various things, yeah, we don't care anymore. You're going to do what we say. They want you to be okay with forcing medical procedures on people that are not willing to comply. They're not willing to just give their consent, but you have to deal with it for the greater good. And they shove it in our face every day. And I got to tell you, the libertarians were super disappointing in this. And then my conservative brethren, by and large, really did a poor job of pushing back. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not interested in that medical procedure. No, I'm not going to put that on my face. No, I'm not going to go along to get along. No, I don't approve of this behavior. No, I'm not going to let you do that to my kid. No, I'm not going to let you do that to my daughter. No, heck no. That's not okay. And, and they've aligned big business and big government against us. And they act with almost impunity on how they treat us and mistreat us. We have very little recourse. And at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, how did we get here? How did this happen? What can we do about it? Well, the interesting thing is, Victoria does, in fact, tell you what could be done about it. Now, it's not uber pleasant. In fact, I might get in trouble by even mentioning it. In fact, there's some passages in the books that would make some of my... Uh, hmm, Conservative friends get a little antsy. God forbid a leftist were to read it. Oh, they might wet their pants. And, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And even some of the libertarian friends that I have might roll their eyes at some of the things because this is both in kinship with what happens in Molan Bay and uh, an antithesis, if you will. Very interesting. Worth a read. 
And of course, do as you must. Hey, and I'm going to finish the week strong. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in. And like I say, the best way, the best way you can help me like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Follow me on the social media. Join my page or follow my page. Join my group. Let's get this done. Let's continue to make a difference. Tell your friends. Come and join us. And until then, I will see you on the other side.